Welcome to Long Covid Physio Podcast, the podcast for physiotherapists and other allied health professionals to share their stories of living with Long Covid and our allies in clinical practice, research and policy to join the discussion. Hello and welcome to Long Covid Physio Podcasts. My name is Darren Brown. I am a physiotherapist and I am living with Long Covid. And today we have two guests. In fact, we, it's our first podcast with two guests and also our first with guests from Switzerland. So Kaba Amilo, would you please do us the honour of introducing yourselves? Well, thanks for having us, Darren. Um, I'm a big fan of your absolutely fantastic and professional and inspiring work you're doing for all of us who are working, caring and uh, supporting people living with long COVID. Oh, thank you. (laughs) That's very kind. (laughs) And uh, I'm a physio since almost 30 years. I started my physio journey in 1992. I'm 49 years old. Next year, there will be a double anniversary. There will be 50 year Kaba and 30 year physio Kaba. (laughs) (laughs) um, Since the beginning um, of my study in physiotherapy, I'm excited about the lung. And this passion started during my training at the University Hospital in Zurich on the ICU ward. I was on the one hand fascinated by the state of the art of technology, of uh, top medicine, as well as by the body's self-healing capacity, which could be supported by respiratory therapy and I really do love to work in uh, interdisciplinary teams. Um, Then came a crucial, and actually for the rest of my career, very important decision in the last year of my study, the places of the last internship were decided by drawing lots. And so um, I had to go to work in the rehab clinic far from the city, an hour journey by train and bus every morning, a clinic 885 meters above sea level, a former TB sanatorium. Um, not the famous sanatorium that there was in Switzerland, the, the Zauberberg, not this one, but an identical architecture with this huge balcony to the south where people 100 years ago were lying um, on a comfortable deck chair six hours every day and the treatment or the cure was just rest, good air and, and, and sun. Um, um, so we might come up later during our chat on this keyword time to recover and finding a balance between rest and run. <laughs> And um, but when when I arrived in this sanatorium 1995, the backbone of pulmonary rehab was, especially um, with people living with COPD, physical activity, and I loved it. I had such a good time in the team. There was an atmosphere of trust and professionality and enthusiasm that gave me the power and circumstances to create new things and develop new structures to bring pulmonary rehab uh, further for the goodness of the people. For example, I founded um, together with four um, physio friends, the um, Association of Swiss um, Physios on Pulmonary Rehab, which just had the 20th anniversary two years ago. And during that time in the sanatorium, during the 90s, I met Milo, and it was actually you, 
for broad accidents. The second pillar of pulmonary rehab, the self-management program, the program Living Well with COPD uh, to Switzerland. And at the moment, I am self-employed. I'm uh, training health professionals in giving these self-management programs, um, especially Living Well with COPD, and um, to, to like help people to change uh, to find uh, intrinsic motivation for behavior change, uh, a big word. Um, yeah, so um, that's part of my physio life at the moment. Oh, well, thank you very much for that comprehensive introduction. It's very nice to hear all of your work and, and looking forward to those big anniversaries. Uh, so, so Milo, would you do us the honor of introducing yourself as well? Yeah, sure, happy to. So we have actually the same roots. I also started off in that rehabilitation clinic and we had the very same mentor at that point, Otto Brandley. He was the director of that, medical director of that clinic. I, I, I went to medical school and this was my first um, like position after medical school. And we actually had, we didn't meet for quite a while. I mean, we heard from each other, Cobb and, and, and me, we heard from each other. <laughs> um, but it took, I think, I don't know, one or two years until we actually really met in person. So, <laughs> but anyway, I I started there and then I um, was decision was up to to uh, go into research or not and had a kind of a combined position and then I decided for research went into did a PhD in, in epidemiology like uh, it was more clinically oriented clinical epidemiology and and did a lot in that in that area of pulmonary rehabilitation so this my my whole PhD was actually around um, uh, measurements, uh, outcome measurements, and then uh, around pulmonary rehab in COPD patients mainly, and then also a trial comparing like two different types of exercise um, for these patients. Yeah, and from there, yeah, I stayed in Epi, um, did some more work, and then went to the US. I was in, at uh, Johns Hopkins for mm -hmm. a good four years. Uh, I was a professor there for epidemiology. And then came back to to Switzerland, but always kept. I mean, I have other topics as well. It's it was mainly chronic diseases, I must say. Um, the COPD topic always <laughs> remained. Um, yeah, but uh, I mean, some other some other areas as well. Also, some methodological area. Yeah, and I, I I had relatively little to do with infectious disease. To be honest, I had some some yeah here and there HIV and some, but but actually very little. <laughs> And now with this um, Corona pandemic, I'm um, in the middle of it and <laughs> coordinating a, a very large research program in Switzerland, you know, with more than 40 studies and more than 40,000 participants. So it's a very large coordinated um, effort to, 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 to study the whole pandemic in Switzerland. Absolutely. And, and thank you for that. So, so not only do you two know each other, but we have like a multidisciplinary team here almost, don't we? We've got physio and med, uh, medical director, and then we've also got epidemiology in here as well. Um, so, so thank you both for joining us today. I know that I'm very excited to, I, I, this is the first time I'm meeting you, Milo, but I know that I met Kaba uh, in Geneva in 2019. We met at the World Physiotherapy Congress, didn't we? And in fact, I think we was at something called PT Pub Night, weren't we? So we was, there was music. Music and drinking and dancing and we got rather excited because we started talking about the role of physiotherapy and like rehabilitation for people in the context of intimacy and sex didn't we and uh, you were talking about sexy COPD and I was talking what about what I do in HIV rehabilitation so uh, we've met each other for a couple of a couple of years ago but absolutely lovely to be speaking with you both again today um, so 
Milo, you mentioned about uh, the studies that are going on in Switzerland. Um, and I wondered if you would tell us a little bit more about those epidemiological studies that are currently happening. Yeah, I mean, maybe I can give you a, a brief overview before I, maybe can focus on the study that where we have, um, where we study um, lung COVID. So mm. the, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the backbone of this program is called Corona Immunitas and it's done by, um, by the universities, the partners of the Swiss School of Public Health. Um, so we decided very early on last March, actually, to work very closely together. We also saw that in other countries, there were a lot of research efforts, but not very coordinated. And um, so it was very, so that it's very difficult to get a consistent picture of the epidemiology and all around what is going on around the pandemic. So we decided to, to join um, our forces and, and have <clears throat> established this program where at the, the backbone of that is really um, our um, zero prevalence studies um, in all regions of, of Switzerland. And of course, we look at many more issues, but this is really the backbone and where all the sites basically follow the exact same protocol. So with all the questionnaires, we, we, with the antibody tests and stuff like that. So we all do the same, but on the other side, and this turned out to be a really successful model for research or for such a collaboration, um, all the sites have their freedom to do additional studies. And so it's, and it's very synergistically. So we benefit a lot from this backbone, but then added additional studies to that. So we, in Zurich, we run 10 studies <laughs> and some of them are very large, like the school-based studies to see what's happening in the, in the school. It's called Ciao Corona, where there's gonna be, by the way, a publication in the BMJ coming out in two weeks from now, approximately. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the largest cohort studies of you know, randomly selected schools and children. And then, um, um, yeah, we look into specific um, uh, um, vulnerable groups of the population uh, and so on. And very importantly, and this is also a large effort, we, we created this um, Zurich coronavirus cohort where we um, basically have a random selection of people who are, are reported to the health authorities of, uh, with, a with a confirmed diagnosis of, of SARS-CoV-2. Um, so we randomly sample from them. So you get the whole spectrum across from asymptomatic to hospitalized uh, people. And, and I think it's still one of the very few um, um, population-based, so to speak, studies of, of SARS-CoV-2 patients. And, and, and within that, I mean, the main focus is the study of the immune response, how this develops over time. So we do very repeatedly do the blood work and so on. And the long COVID was actually not very much the focus of that study, uh, which is, I think, is a very big advantage because these people are not self-selected. So it's not a study where you said, oh, we're going to study long COVID. No, the, the main point was really to study the, the immune response. But I think we had a good, um, good um, yeah, I think it was back in July or June when we designed this study, we had the sense of this may be something in the in the um, long COVID, maybe something that may come out. And so we, we also had questionnaires and stuff like that on, on, on long COVID and it turned out <laughs> to become really important so, so that we have now, now, now already data on some, some of the people who are in the, in the study now for more than six months. Yeah, and I, I find it really fascinating, actually, that the, the approach that's been taken, which is that there's this incredibly coordinated, um, multi-dimensional approach to data collection. And I don't know that there are there or is this quite unique? Um, I think it's quite unique. 
um, there are several studies who do, uh, and so several countries, also Public Health England, for example, or Spain, they do have repeated population-based seroprevalence studies, but this is really restricted mostly to antibody testing, and it's not, it doesn't go too much beyond that. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, because I think like from what I've seen of the study, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's also a particular focus on people that may be at higher risk of contracting coronavirus. I saw there was people that work in laundrettes, and and then also you mentioned about the the the, the large size of the study in relation to children, which is of incredible importance in terms of not only just public health of transmission when we're talking about what's going on with lockdowns, but also now moving on into uh, long COVID. Um, so, so I wondered if you tell us a little bit about um, how you've measured the nature and extent of long COVID in this study. <clears throat> so we have, um... On one side, we also measure symptoms with like these validated questionnaire, MRC, um, like dyspnea scale or the DAS for, for, for depression or some fatigue scale and so on. But we also, or EQ5D, <clears throat> so we have these standardized um, instruments. But we also said we wanted to have a question which is a more, <clears throat> give a more global uh, question which really asks people if they feel whether they have returned to their health from before. Yes. Because we, we we felt that such a global parameter is probably also is also quite useful probably because people sometimes it's not a single symptom that stands out or it may be hard to distinguish it from symptoms like depression depressive symptoms that are around anyway you know it's very hard that's one of the big topics in research anyway to distinguish it from what is there anyway right and so i think we are quite happy that we also had this this question is more global question of whether people have returned to their health before the whatever that was it may have been not so good before but whether their health status let's say is the the same or not from before yeah and i i i love a bit of outcome measures so i'm going to ask you a bit more about that so like because you mentioned that there's a health related quality of life measurement tool so the eq5d5l there was a, a breathlessness scale the mrc's dyspnea scale uh, there was a fatigue scale i forgot on which one you said it was what was the fatigue scale um, it, it's, it, I'm blanking on the name. It, it's the one, <laughs> uh, one of the very commonly used the, um, yeah. scale that asks about fatigue also in different situations of life and so gotcha. on. And then there was another one. That, um, what was the other scale you mentioned? There was a, the depression and anxiety. Depression and anxiety, yes. Yeah. So obviously there's kind of physical, mental, quality of life. And then the last one you mentioned was about recovery. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen recently that there's uh, the core outcome measure sets um, and one is on that recovery. Is that the same thing or is that different? No, it's um, ours is really a rather simple scale for a liquor type scale from yeah. the one to five or so. It sounds, it sounds very similar because I think the core outcome measure um, uh, on recovery uh, is also a five point Likert scale. I don't know whether they're, they're, they're similar or not, but it's I mean, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, of course. I mean, we tried to harmonize, of course, with, with existing measures. I, I don't remember when the, the WHO um, set of outcome measures on, 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 on SARS-CoV-2 or more, more broadly came out. Of course, we tried to harmonize as much as we could. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I, I guess uh, quite a few of the measures are, are similar to what other people measure. Yeah, absolutely. Because I know that the, the World Health Organization have released their uh, case report form, haven't they, on what they're calling post-COVID conditions. Uh, by the way, thank you for calling your study long COVID. That's a personal thank you. <laughs> That's my personal preference. And I know lots of people in the communities living with long COVID also prefer it. So thank you for that. I know that in the case report form from the World Health Organization, organization they've included a whole raft of things haven't they there's loads of measures and I know one of them they've included is the World Health Organization's disability assessment schedule which is obviously around functioning and disability but again in that they don't have anything on recovery I don't think about have you returned back to baseline functioning so really important so we've talked about the epidemiology data collection but what's the study found what's the outcome of this yeah, I mean, so far we have the results from those who were infected between March and beginning of August. Um, so, and I say that because we had, the, for at least up to up to May or June, we had a little more restrictive testing criteria because of the availability of the test. So they tend to be a little sicker than the, than per persons after that. But I'm, I'm not sure how, how much it is. But but anyway, um, so we found that 26% reported to not 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 having returned to their health status from before the infection. Um, this does, by the way, not correlate highly with the symptoms they report. I mean, this brings back the issue of what is long COVID, what is has been there before. People with at least one symptom is also around a quarter. So it, it's a similar number, but not very high agreement between these, these measures. Yeah. And, and it, it's it's not that easy to, to then quantify, you know, the the, the 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 severity of the long COVID, but we we estimate about 10 to 15 percent of these 25 or 26 percent. So at the end, two to three percent are still really severely, severely affected. So that's really interesting, isn't it? So 26% of the sample that you uh, recruited into this study that had a positive COVID-19 test, so po serological positive, had, had 26% of them after, had not returned back to their baseline level of functioning. Over what time period was that? Six to eight months six to eight months. So that's really fascinating, isn't it? And you said there was a bit of an understanding as to kind of, um, the, uh, I think you said 10 to 15% are, are more severe in their restrictions of functioning or, or not returning back to their normal level of, of activity or functioning. So that's quite a, a high prevalence, isn't it? And potentially higher than some other studies are showing. And I suppose that's the nature of epidemiology, isn't it? Where it's yeah, I mean, it's a, it's yeah, it's a matter of the population study, the definition, the time points. I mean, there was a very similar study that just came out in JAMA. It was a research letter from a group in Seattle that showed a very similar number. Really? Yeah. yeah so, but we'll see how it emerges and how the definitions get more consistent over time mm. to make it more comparable. And with that, what do you think the implications are of this um, in terms of that prevalence of people not returning back to their level of function six to eight months after contracting coronavirus? Yeah, um, very briefly, research-wise, I think it's, it's still the point that we need to somehow try to separate it from what has been there before the pandemic and during the pandemic. You know, depression is a typical symptom. This is yes. like moderate to severe, the prevalence of that, moderate to severe depression is about 8% in our area. 
-hmm. and it may by now be 15%. <laughs> and if we observe in our study um, like 25 or 30% um, or whatever, then we know that that's maybe about the difference that long COVID makes. Yes. You know, we don't want to scare people and say 30% are depressive, 50% have fatigue. Of course, um, it's not good for them, but it doesn't mean that all of them is attributed to, to long COVID. So I think this is one important thing we need to figure out over time now um, to better distinguish that. Mm. And the other thing, I mean, from my view, but I know I, I was very impressed by the by um, by what the UK is doing, you know, with the um, your recovery, your long COVID recovery, and with the clinics and the, and at the website, and I think the approach that is taken that is really um, relatively low key entry into that, you know, and not not focusing just on medical problems, but it becomes very clear that this is also um, socially and occupationally, and there is many different dimensions. So I, I think this is. This is very important and what we need to do in Switzerland here, but maybe elsewhere as well, is that that um, we do a, a proper needs assessment. So what do people really need? And this may be context dependent. It may be to some extent slightly different from country to country, depending on what is available and so on. But the needs assessment in terms of medical support they need, but also in terms of social or other mm. support they need. And based on that, then build up the, the offers that are needed to address those needs. Um, and I, I just say this because I see some some hospitals or practices they have um, op opened long COVID um, and clinics, which is very good. But um, some of them are not very multidisciplinary. Okay. Some of them are very good for referrals, but not as the entry point. Um, so I think that that's important, and not to medicalize or specialize too much right from the beginning. Yeah, you've raised so many important points there. So around. So the first thing I'm thinking from what you've said there is about what's specifically attributable in terms of not returning back to normal function, what's specifically attributable to having had coronavirus. So we're all living in a changed world at the moment, aren't we? So uh, people, I don't know whether you're in lockdowns of some description or not in Switzerland, but I know we are here and it's having a huge impact on people's physical and mental health. So there's that element as well. And it reminds me of kind of some of the work that's been going on in HIV, which has always been the argument of, okay, well, you're talking about disability in the context of HIV, but what's actually because of HIV? What's because of other comorbidities? What's because of stigma? And actually, often what tends to be the approach is it's really difficult to untangle what's because of this or because of that or because of that because they're not really different silos are they and so often a lot of the approach that's been taken in HIV is this is reporting the experiences of people living with HIV and I suppose there may even be a similar approach here which is we may not be able to untangle amongst people living with long COVID what's completely attributable to the experiences of the disease or access to health services or what's going on in their social lives, but this is what's happening to them. And so it comes on to the point that you were raising around services and how important it is to have a multidisciplinary approach um, and making sure that people can access in a, a locked down world um, and, and making sure that people get the right services at the right time that is, is addressing all of the different challenges and thinking more broadly about both the medical, functional and, and disability aspects of that. So there's, there's lots, of, lots to do, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Cabot, um, I was wondering, um, 
obviously there's there's talk about specialist services um, that are being set up around the world specifically to address the needs of people living with long COVID. But we know that people living with long COVID are going to be accessing any services anywhere, just like every other person with a chronic health condition. So people with long COVID are gonna be cropping up in um, respiratory therapy services, in musculoskeletal services. I wondered, has there been much talk about that in the context of Switzerland uh, from like the rehabilitation groups or, or more specifically physiotherapy about what may happen when people living with long COVID start to appear in, in traditional models of, uh, or, of rehab or services? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we just had a chat among this uh, physio society, this um, pulmonary rehab lung physio society. And we just realized that um, people that were on, who had um, COVID-19 and were on ICU and come to rehab, they recover quite good. And quite quickly, um, we also see like, quicker than, uh, like, for example, compared to COPD patients in terms of six minute walking distance and quality of life. They really are deconditioned, uh, ICU acquired um, deconditioning. But now we see that people who were like um, not hospitalized and who are supposed to have this long COVID syndrome, if they appear, um, uh, sometimes they do not appear because they don't get the prescription, they're not hurt, they're not being taken serious. But if they appear in like um, a physiotherapy, outdoor um, clinic, um, um, with the normal um, therapies like a physical activity, this is not possible. So in the last like 20 years, we really concentrated in terms of physical activity on interval training, on high intensity training, yeah. really on deconditioning of lung and heart patients. And we do realize that we are not fit. We are physios are not fit um, with these, um, um, like it's maybe more the occupational therapist. We realize that it's going along with chronic fatigue Mm-hmm. But um, people with chronic fatigue, they're normally not in the physios and in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we see them in palliative care or in onco rehab. But the classical, I mean, my society of pulmonary rehab physios, we are really not fit with yeah. dealing people who are, um, I say, deconditioned and not fit, not because of deconditioning. So we really have to listen very, very carefully to take them serious, to give them time to recover, to go with other um, symptoms than heart rate, (laughs) to really um, learn a lot from fatigue, dealing with fatigue. And um, you had this um, podcast on pacing and um, post-exertional malaise. These are terms who are not common in pulmonary rehab in physiotherapy. You really, really have to be very, very careful and learn and listen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so fascinating to hear that from a different country's perspective as well, that very similar things are being reported in terms of the the kind of subgroups of people that are under the umbrella heading of long COVID. Because obviously at the moment, long COVID is a term that really just defines the duration that people have had symptoms after coronavirus and includes so many different people, including those that have been all the way up to intensive care and survived, 
to the other end of the spectrum are people that have been managing at home and accessed zero health services. So it's a very broad, diverse group of people. And it's interesting to hear you say there that there are almost like people have tried to subclassify them and group them, but uh, there's many different arguments about that. But you've just talked about those that have been in hospital, been in intensive care, that have developed weakness and been deconditioned because of the very nature of being in intensive care that respond really well to traditional models of rehab that might benefit from exercise. And then in the other camp, there are those that maybe haven't been in hospital that are really not responding well to physical activity interventions, which is really what we're hearing here as well. And, and it's a lived experience too. I really didn't respond well to my traditional physio head. Yeah, go on. And to keep in mind, those who were not hospitalized are in terms of numbers, many, many more. Yes. I mean, you know, it's uh, how many are hospitalized at the moment? It's it's less than 10 percent, much yep. less, I guess. And, and, and so we saw that or in our like first analysis, we saw that that, uh, of course, thir 39 of those hospitalized developed this long COVID, but it was still 23 percent um, of, of, of the of, of those who were not hospitalized, which is close mm. to the 26 percent, you know, overall. So overall, the, the large majority will be people that have not been hospitalized before. Which is fascinating, isn't it? And I don't think anyone really understands that yet, do they? Why is it that people that were hospitalized may be having a different trajectory to those that were not hospitalized? Um, and and it's, it's the same virus, but is there something about the interventions or the nature of how the virus manifested in the body? We just don't know, do we? And it's, and it's, it's so interesting to hear uh, that these similar patterns are appearing in different contexts and countries because obviously rightly so so much emphasis has gone on the acute uh, management because exactly. of the, the nature of it it needed to be however when we look at the, this moving forward we the larger proportion of people with the disability are going to be those that were never even admitted to hospital and so our health systems need to be prepared for those things and it's it's potentially going to be a a, a huge demand on healthcare services that that's why i put so much emphasis on because we do not know we have just to listen to the people with the, and i think it's an, an attitude yes of, of, of health profession just an attitude of like a unconditional appreciation just yeah. to take them serious to listen and to to mention back from my introduction to give them the time they need to recover absolutely and it may be so different it may be so different and I, I cannot thank you enough for even saying that, Kaba. Like that, that unconditional appreciation is is vital, and I think lots of people living with long COVID have not felt that actually, and have been, you know, to use a strong word, potentially gaslighted by health services and being told it's in their heads or that it's, you know, being told to just get on with things. And um, we're seeing that that shift now. We are really seeing that shift in, in terms of recognition and validation. Um, but you, you, you mentioned right at the very beginning about <clears throat> sanitariums and rest and recovery. Oh my God, as a physio, rest is like a dirty word, isn't it? Like, God, tell me more about this. Yeah, I'm thinking about it really a lot and a lot. And I mean, physical activity, it has two parts. It's always the dose, you know, you have the, the time of uh, sweating and going physically active, but then you have the time to rest. Mm. And 
the adaptions in the body are happening during the time of rest. So I think physical activity is also a good thing for people living with low COVID, but it's only about the dose and yeah. time of rest. And we just do not know, we can't go the, the, the way we know. We just, again, we have to find out and to listen very, very, very carefully. And maybe we need some more um, time for like, we call them the passive therapies, you know, the um, all these uh, hydrotherapies or maybe just like caring and looking after them in a more passive way, not just an active way. Mm. And um, the focus um, really in pulmonary rehab is 90% on the active part. Yeah. And that's going to be, I think that's probably where the, the challenge has been recently in a lot of what I've seen in terms of the rehabilitation approach, which is uh, wanting to support people to be as active as possible because we're used to that being successful and we're used to that working. Um, however, what we're hearing a lot is that the lessons from the communities of people living with MECFS, for example, are guiding us in our approach now um, in how physical activity and exertion can be detrimental and set people back and increase disability. And we need to think about the role of rest and repose in, in, in our recoveries. And when we don't understand the nature and extent of long COVID or the trajectories of what happens over time, it's, 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 it's gonna be really difficult to know whether that rest makes a difference on people's recovery later. Um, Cause I know for me, it feels like I pushed too hard too soon and that impacted me in my recovery. And you cannot run out of fatigue. Right? Yeah. And that's, what's fascinating, isn't it? Because there are different types of fatigue. And you mentioned earlier about post-exertion malaise. That's a really specific symptom, isn't it? And uh, classically it's under the international diagnosis or uh, definition of MECFS. And we're seeing this now in this condition and there's reports of it in other conditions as well. Um, so there's, there's lots to learn with all of this and the lessons that could be, sorry, that's my doorbell going again. It seems to happen every time I'm on a podcast. <laughs> so, so what I'm thinking then is, first of all, what's the next steps, Milo, in the research? Well, in the research, we I mentioned the, the persons we have recruited in the spring to the summer, but from August 8th, I think on, we have really prospective enrollment as well. And there we have the opportunity to really measure like all these symptoms and so well, even more from the beginning and that three months, that six months, that's nine months. So it gives us a much better understanding of the trajectory. Mm -hmm. This is one thing we are going to look into. Um, the other thing is we contribute to the, to a global, global burden of disease analysis, you know. Amazing. And this is, um, it's very complicated. I mean, the, our <laughs> colleagues in Seattle have to have to deal with all the data that come in, um, but that's very interesting. And this is um, gonna be a very interesting analysis where our Zurich, our CSAC, we call it, our Zurich cohort um, contributes very importantly to that, which is nice. Yeah. And then, I mean, we see what develops in Switzerland. I, 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 I guess there will be also funding opportunities where we may, I would like to add at least some, um, assessments i mean it's all patient reported by now which is perfectly fine and will always be i think the most important part 
but we, we it would also be nice to have some closer look at at, at maybe pulmonary um, pulmonary parameters and so on. So that would be good. Yeah. But maybe more importantly, what we are setting up. Um, uh, I had the idea about three weeks ago, I think four weeks ago, <laughs> to set up a long COVID science board, um, where we think now about. Um, uh, 20 persons living with long COVID, about five relatives and about five living for years already with these post-viral syndromes, Ooh. you know, we have also a more long-term perspective. And, and the idea would be with this, with this board of 30 people that we make available all we know from the literature or whatever, from our studies and so on. And then we have them identify the research needs from their perspective and come up with a, with a list of prioritized research topics. Oh, wow. And then the idea is to feed that, to feed that into the, the research agenda of the Swiss National Science Foundation or the, of, the, the Federal Office of Public Health and so on to really bring that in so that the research agenda and the calls for proposals and so on is not just just um, guided by experts or researchers like me or so, not by, <laughs> by, by actually um, by, the, by the patient perspective. So this is what will happen hopefully very soon over the next over the next weeks and uh, oh wow that is super exciting I love the idea that you've got this data already and uh, as you rightly said you know it's so important that there's self-reported data or subjective measures uh, but complementing that with objective measures so actually measuring things on people whether that be uh, biometrics or functioning or whatever it may be uh, but wow how exciting to have this science board like that's that's absolutely incredible. I don't, doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I don't know of anything like that elsewhere, but. Yeah, no, I, I talked to Pietro Oliaro from Oxford University. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we just talked about that. And, and it, because he, he was also a co-author on a letter in, in Lancet Infectious Diseases, and they touched a little bit on that. And, but they did, I think, webinars with persons uh, living with long COVID. And, and he also said it's to his knowledge, it's one of the, maybe the first effort to do that but I also said I mean we, we try to make this available as soon as possible so it would be interesting to run that in parallel as also in a, in a number of countries and you know maybe the preferences and values differ so it mm -hmm. may also be that the, the priorities research priorities may be quite different that may also be the case maybe not maybe yes I don't know Absolutely. And I think that's going to be really fascinating, isn't it? How if these things are built up um, with, with, with mirror copies of approaches uh, in different contexts and countries to identify what people's priorities are to guide research priorities, it'd be fascinating, wouldn't it, to see whether they're the same or different in different countries? Because I know from lived experience now doing these podcasts for a while communicating with people in different countries about long covid it feels like there's quite similar themes that seem to emerge about what people's experiences are almost irrespective of the healthcare setting they're in because we know healthcare massively different around different countries so i think it'd be really fascinating to see that i'm really excited for that um and i'm wondering more specifically around rehabilitation and maybe physiotherapy, Kappa, what do you think is going to be needed? What do we need to do? Good question. I asked you a hard question. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, exactly what we, what we always do, just take them people serious. 
to listen, that's just a fourth point, and to let us lead from them and not from our opinion on our agenda and our um, view of how much time it needs to recover. Um, I think that's but that's what we physios actually always do. <laughs> but actually, um, um, people with long COVID should get access to physio. That's the first thing. They should get diagnosed. Um, or maybe it's at the moment, it's uh, as I understand, this syndrome is diagnosed by exclusion from, from other diagnoses. So like um, GPs and um, um, specialists should think about referring them, at least in Switzerland, they have to be referred. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think, yeah, if I, I believe if they are, um, if people with long COVID have access to physiotherapy and we carefully listen, so I'm, then I'm very, very positive that we can support them in coming back, yeah, step by step. Absolutely, absolutely. Give them the, give them the voice. Yeah, well, well it, it does sound like from what you've described today in Switzerland, you are certainly doing that. You are giving people with long COVID a voice. Um, they're, they're at the table, in fact. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and driving forward uh, approaches and potentially research. Uh, so thank you both for, for doing that. It's absolutely incredible. So my last question to you both. If there was anything that you wanted to share, plug, promote, uh, a, a magic wand that you want to wish for something, what would it be? Ooh. Oh. <laughs> Have you not been offered a magic wand before, Kava? <laughs> Ooh. Um, maybe it's not so magic, but I think very important is to to bring um, all the stakeholders to the table. I think that's the most important. So that's um, it's the, the patient's perspectives, the relatives, but also, you know, it's not only the medical community, but also how otherwise in so, social services, insurances and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's such a complicated <laughs> context also we are living in. And has so many ramifications um, that I think it's important to take um, to bring all these stakeholders together in order to, you know, efficiently do research, but also advance with the with the offers in healthcare or social care that, that are needed. So I think this kind of coordination, bringing people together, is very important. Not not very matching. It's very down to earth, but I think it's important. <laughs> but no, the I, basic I work, right? I could agree with that, I, I, which I could wish that I could wish that every person had this attitude, which I mentioned before, of this unconditional appreciation towards every being, every human being, just just um, to sometimes go uh, in the shoes of the other, to look with their eyes if you would be that person. Well, both beautiful sentiments to finish this podcast with. So there's not only involving and including people living with and affected by long COVID, um, but then also that unconditional recognition and support. Um, so I want to thank you both so much for this today. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing about all of the work that you've been doing and congratulations on all of it. It sounds fantastic. And I look forward to uh, all of the future uh, outputs that you have as well. So thank you both so, so much. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs>